Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. When you send a short story to a magazine, it probably doesn't go directly to the editor. Instead, it ends up in what is called the slush pile, the pool of unsolicited work waiting for review. Who reviews it? Weirdos like us. In this episode of Write Good, we're joined by slush readers Nikki and Carl, and we are going to talk about what we've learned from waiting in the slush pile. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, what publications do you read slush for? Well, currently, I'm not reading for anyone, but I have read for a few different places. Primarily, I I spent some time as I was unemployed, like a lot of people were during a large part of this global pandemic that we're living in. I was uh, part of the team working with Constellation magazine, which is the bilingual speculative fiction magazine. Cool. And uh, I'm currently reading Slush for Seize the Press, but in the past I've also read Criticism for a nonfiction outlet that is now defunct, sadly. And I have read slush for blood knife and seize the press so we've all spent a bit of time reading in the slush pile Mm -hmm. we've all been on both sides of it i think all of us are writers who've definitely gone through the the excitement and and frustration of submission so Mm -hmm. in this episode i really want to stress from the from the top we're not saying this to like dunk on people we're trying to just show what it's like on the other side because from the outside, it's like you throw your submission into a hole, yeah. and then what happens when it's in this mysterious hole, you know? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so it's like, for well, sure. here, you, here's what it's like from people who are in the submission hole. <laughs> Down in the trenches. What is that? What is at the bottom? Oh, yeah, yeah what, what is at the bottom? And, and it turns out it's full of slush. So that's what happens when you submit your unsolicited story to a fiction mag. It goes into the slush pile for slush readers to look at. It's very rare for a magazine's editor to read all of the submissions. I know Charles Finlay did it for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and there were also associate editors and assistant editors. I don't know if Sharid still does that. I I, I don't know. I would not blame her really if she not. didn't, because they get like a thousand submissions a month, and I can't imagine reading yeah, all the impre- that. Yeah, the impression I have is that she doesn't, and, you know, good for her. Yeah, that's, seriously. That's like, the same option. <laughs> love yourself. You don't need that shit in your life. And the reason we have slush piles is, is just as previously stated, it's astonishing. Magazines get so many submissions, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of work to run a magazine, and the head editor has so much shit to do. You really can't expect them to read a thousand fucking stories a month. Yeah. I mean, and, and we're talking about Charlie Finlay and Sheree Renee Thomas, who are the editors of one of the biggest science fiction and fantasy magazines in existence. And yeah. Of course, they have a team of 
unpaid readers uh, going through their unsolicited submissions. Uh, imagine the smaller names in the short fiction world, the the semi-pro, one cent a word venues. They're getting just as much, if not more. Oh yeah, of the runoff. <laughs> Yeah, it is astonishing just how many submissions fiction magazine gets, even if it's like a teeny tiny magazine. Because to be fair, a lot of people, it's not necessarily readers who submit. It's just you look for a list of places that are Mm -hmm. open to submissions and you fucking send it. Yeah, I've definitely What's this magazine? I've never heard of it. I don't know. They pay (laughs) two cents a word. Fuck it. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed people who definitely seem to be using the shotgun approach, which which I definitely like. I sympathize with, mm-hmm. but yep. um, but it also makes me sympathize with the editors who are trying to quality control read for their slush readers. And I can only imagine it must be like being under an avalanche of fiction. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a ton. So so that is why magazines use slush readers. And we've said unpaid slush readers. Well, I mean, fiction magazines aren't making much money here. No, no, no. Like, I'm sorry. In the good old days, they could pay slush readers. But these days, I, you probably can't afford it. It's nope. super unlikely that you have it in the funds. Blood Knife does actually give a bit of a payment, which is quite rare, rare yeah. um, which is pretty cool. Most magazines don't. Unfortunate that. But yeah, them's the breaks. Yeah. So how did we become slush knife readers or slush? <laughs> how did we become slush readers? Oh God. Well, I Dad, mean, yeah. Dad speaking of editors of being overwhelmed. Speaking funny. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Harley says you fucked up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how, how did we become slush readers? I, I think most magazines are probably just like kind of open to, Hey, we need more slush readers. We, we were inundated with this. Um, Blood Knife, I know, was careful to to sort of vet slush readers. I, mm-hmm. I think Kurt has some kind of process where he makes sure these that he's getting readers who sort of understand what the magazine is about. Like yeah. a story that might fit really well in Uncanny or Daily Science Fiction might be really unsuitable for Blood Knife. It, it, the magazine's going for a certain vibe. Yeah. And yeah it's kind of I... tricky because when you're reading, you need to think not just about your own personal taste, but... Sure would this be right for the magazine? Not necessarily, is this right for just me? Yeah, I mean, that's, from what I understand, a lot of places have bigger names and smaller names. They have some kind of a vetting process that could have different steps or not. I think nowadays, in a lot of cases, a lot of of these short fiction venues have their own Discord server and people sort of powwow there and... For example, with Constellacion, I uh, they may had a call on their Discord server for we need volunteer slush readers, and that's when I threw my hat in because, like I said, I was out of a job and yeah, more online than I had ever been in my life, and yeah, no kidding, was uh, ready to to take the plunge. I mean, if you spend any time in these writing circles online, you hear people talking a lot about oh, it's a good idea if you want to learn about improving your craft then you know become a slush reader yeah. and yeah there are definitely some things you can learn there but yeah the question you mentioned earlier about the vibe how do you know when when the vibes are on and the vibes are off yeah it's hard <sighs> it, it's there's not like a science to it you know it's easier uh, of course it's easier if they're you know if we're talking about a magazine that's been in existence for some time and you can read the archives and, and get a sense of what they publish. But there are new 
new markets, as they call them, uh, appearing. It seems like every week there's a call for submissions of some exciting new short fiction venue. But, you know, they haven't, you don't really, you can't really go back and read the archives to to know what they want. So you just kind of have to go on. Sometimes it's, it's, I mean, it sounds a little silly, but the graphic design choices on their website, like <laughs> what colors are they using? Is there a picture of a skull or is there a picture of a mermaid? You know, like what are they yeah. doing here? Yeah. 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 And I, I also find that there's, it. it's a bit like being in a writing workshop, if, if, as silly as it might sound when. Like it, it's really easy for readers uh, in my limited experience of dealing with other slush readers to critique based on their own personal taste. Like all, all those same easy to easy to easy to make mistakes of critiquing, mm-hmm. but also trying to stay, get them to be aligned with the editorial guidelines. It's like, no, no, we don't just want what you think is good necessarily. Right. But we want things that we want to publish. Right. And that's a much different question. Yeah, no, it's, it's it takes some time to to reach that that point of like I don't like this, but it's well written. Maybe someone else will like it, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, why do we do this? I mean, previously mentioned this is usually unpaid. It it takes up a fair bit of time. You do learn a little bit about the industry. You learn how the sausages are made. And it is a helpful way to make connections within the publishing industry. Sure. Yeah, I for me, it's been more than learning some sort of prescriptive things of like, do this, don't do that. For me, it's just been more a, a question of perspective, like just sort of a demystification hmm. of the process, right? So like you spend time sending short stories through Moksha or Submittable or whatever portal it is that 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 you're that you're submitting through and it's just interesting to be on the other side of that portal and see what it looks like when your little story shows up in someone's queue or whatever yeah and um going back to what we were saying earlier about the sheer volume of submissions most of the time i've read slush like sometimes it's been for an outfit that i started but when I've read for other people's outlets, it's been sympathy with their wild-eyed desperation in terms of their being <laughs> yeah. like, there's just so many stories. Please, somebody help me. Yeah. 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 So something something I find helpful, too, is you start seeing why stories get rejected. Because a lot mm-hmm. of times, especially when you're starting off, you write a story, you send it out, and it gets rejected and rejected and rejected. And you're like, why? I don't understand. And I think mm-hmm. when you read Slush, you start to see why stories mm-hmm. get rejected and it might help mm-hmm. you kind of understand maybe why your story is getting rejected so much even though you think it's great i guess that that really is the main motivation that most people will have to to get into this i think there is a certain sense especially in maybe it's a more recent development i don't know but people have sort of looking at slush reading as like a career move in a weird way of trying mm. to get their foot in the door or get a finger hold on like the bottom rung of the publishing ladder somehow and make connections and things like that. Right. And, as a way to pay your dues. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Dues paying. Yeah. And you know, your, your equivalent of an unpaid internship, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, like, I'm not, I mean, there's, and of course you're volunteering your time, I guess. I mean, it's not unreasonable to maybe hope that there's some tit for tat there. I personally got a tiny bit of uh 
a couple of translation gigs with Constellation. I think thanks in part to the fact that I had read a bunch of stories for them, you know. But yeah, it's it's part of the yeah, I- part of the biz. Outfits do tend to like work with the people they already know, right? Like that's just a matter of experience. Of course, yeah. Especially given how, like we said, how the stories are only one part of why editors have so little time, right? There's all this other stuff they have to do. So in terms of just being available, I think that's a good choice. But Mm -hmm. I also wonder, and and I've been out of touch with publishing for almost a decade now, (laughs) but I wonder how realistic that is. No, probably not at all. I mean, yes and no. On the other hand, we we know how important networking and marketing yourself is in publishing. Mm-hmm. Like we, we know that making these connections will boost your career probably further than having any kind of writing talent will. So I don't think it's totally unreasonable. Yeah. It's funny too, I think recently anyways, you see a lot of people we've, I mean, we've used the word slush like maybe 50 times already as we've been uh, doing this recording <laughs> and you see people sort of moving away from that word. And now it's like, I'm a first reader, I'm a submissions yeah. editor. And I think that yeah. goes, that, 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 that's, that goes in hand in hand with this sort of like, not really professionalization, but this sort of wanting to be taken more seriously. Yeah. yeah. Well, first reader strikes me as interesting because that's from academia, right? That's like a, um, hmm. Hmm. At least I now I'm doubting myself, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure I heard that in academic circles where people like write their dissertation or something and they give it to their first reader to get initial academic feedback, right? So uh, I guess I think, could I, be. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or I, I mean, I guess maybe the idea of calling submissions slush could be seen as possibly possibly sarcastic or insulting but but I, I kind of prefer the honesty sure yeah. of that to be honest like. I do think that if you're writing and submitting, you do need something of a thick skin because you're going to get, even if you're a brilliant writer, you're going to get rejected all over the place. That's just how it fucking goes. So if if the word slush hurts, you're going to have a bad time because you're going to have things that will hurt you way, way worse than the word slush. Yeah. Yeah. And no matter how like how kind people are, like rejection never feels good. Right. No, never, never. So um, having a story that you worked on for a really long time rejected, and then when you read the magazine and you see like, well, this story, I think it's a lot worse than the story I wrote, and they ran that. That's some bullshit. Like that hurts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's one area that I find slush reading has actually really helped in a practical sense. Is like just realizing how many different kinds of stories there are out there, and yeah. how many different kinds of publications there are out there, and how rare it is for the two to line up. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So why don't we talk about why stories get rejected? Many rejection letters that I've seen will try to be kind and they'll say something like, we enjoyed your piece, but we received so many amazing submissions every month. So we, your, yours didn't make the cut. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, judging by the slush I've read, we do not receive so many amazing submissions every month. Yeah. <laughs> we don't read so many. Yeah, it's not that. Most of it's not great. great. It's not great. I, I have read dozens and dozens and dozens of stories for Blood Knife and Seize the Press, and I think I've approved one for Blood Knife and like mm-hmm. three for Seize the Press. Yeah, I yeah. mean that sounds about about right. I mean, and it's not because you know, it's not because the stories are terrible. I mean, the Sturgeon's Law or whatever said or whatever it is, ninety percent of everything is. 
is crap or whatever. I don't think that's true. I think 90% of everything is like mid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Most of the rejections I send out, they're not howlingly bad. No. They're just sort of bland or the style doesn't really do anything for you. It's just sort of inert. Not terrible, yeah. but you read the story and you're just like, eh. That's the most common it. reaction I have, I think, is is basically the same as when I was a GA and I, I got like an essay and I was like, I, I wish I could just help you make this better. Like, yeah. not that it's bad, but I, I, I really I get a lot out of critique and, and being in workshops and stuff like that. And my workshop impulses come out. Mm. Uh, yeah it's like a c or a b minus grade it's it's not yeah. an f most of yeah the time. and you know what i've i mean i i've i've written a bunch of stories that were just mid so yep uh, <laughs> everyone yep. does we have all it, it done that and everyone's definition of what is uh, amazing and what is bad and what is mid is going to be different but we've all been there i think yeah um, yeah so the, most of the stories are just kind of mid and you need to stand out. You need to be great, not just mid mm -hmm. to, to get your work seen. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, you have a limited number of slots in your issue. You have a limited budget and you want to really wow your readers. And most most stories just kind of don't do that, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, I, I think I've read, I wish I'd kept count now, but I, I think I've read about, I don't know, 60 or 70 stories for uh seize the press i might be overcounting, but i would say about maybe 20 percent of them made me go like oh this is this is good and then i think three made me sit up straight and go like right and that's really what i'm looking for is that like yeah that gut reaction yeah yeah so there's there's that most of the stories you're gonna get are mid there's also just the reality that many, many submitters clearly didn't read the guidelines. They'll send cutesy, kind of upbeat stuff to a mag that's specifically looking for dark fiction. That's something I'll see yeah. a lot. You're sort of the first line of defense, you know, when you're reading when you're reading these stories. And a lot of the decisions you have to make aren't really that difficult when you're nope. when, when these stories come in, because sometimes it's just like, okay, well, did this person follow the guidelines? No. But you get, uh, uh, for example, in Constellation. The word count was 6,400 was the maximum. And mm -hmm. I remember reading, pulling a story out of the queue that was in, in Moksha. There's there's fields that you have to fill in for the author's name, the title of the story, word right. count. And it said 6,400. And then you open the document and right there up in the upper right corner where you're meant to put the word count for uh, shun standard manuscript format, it said 7,800 yeah. words. And I said, no. Ooh. Don't do that. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> that is that so, is not even close. Yeah. Yeah, enforce... that's not just like, oh, it's only 10 words. What's it going to yeah. do? No, come on. So you're enforcing the guidelines. If you want to get published in Clark's World magazine and Neil Clark says that he doesn't want zombie stories, don't send him a zombie story, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, also, there are a lot of slush you might be reading for a theme. Mm -hmm. story like mm -hmm. magazines will have theme issues or there will be themed anthologies and if you don't match the theme like i'm sorry yeah there's a lot of yeah. that yeah. or sending submitting to a speculative fiction venue and your story has zero speculative elements that's another <laughs> right. one that's that's popular right uh, or the actually... other way around speculative writers trying to send stuff to literary fiction mm. uh, no 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 yeah. sorry that's an interesting uh, question though because it, it makes me think that so 
sees the press has a, a mandate for dark and transgressive fiction. Absolutely. But I've noticed like a really wide variety in what people like think that means. And and so how do you guys calibrate for that? For like going, okay, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm a horror fan. And so my perception of what dark is, is I think quite different mm. than, than many people. Yeah. But I try to leave room for that. So yeah, how do you guys deal with that? It's tricky. It's tricky. I think in reading for different places, you have to calibrate it in different ways. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. For example, if you're reading, in my experiences with using the Moksha portal, I'm not a super expert, but generally it's like there's a function where you're meant to give the the story a score from one to 10. You know, what is a 10 exactly? And one if you're reading for one place, they may, the editor gives you some guidelines and says, well, a 10 is really good. That means that the editor in chief should definitely have a look. In another place, they, they specifically stipulate, well, 10 is one of the best stories that you've ever read in your life. You know? Yeah, and yeah. So even trying to, I mean, obviously it's kind of silly to try to put a number on these things, but. Right. And I think, I think that, I think hewing to a theme is also similarly subjective you know so like if a story's good if a story's good but it doesn't really meet the theme i might pass that along uh that's true yeah but if it's i'd rather that than a story that perfectly suits the theme and is not very well written or very good and i think the editors appreciate that too yeah that's my impression it can prevent all of the stories and the issue from being too samey but generally so much of what you're doing is just rejecting the very very obvious nose yeah just very obvious this this does not suit the magazine at all it's the wrong genre it's the wrong tone or this violates the word count or this story is pure id like you definitely receive a lot of stories (laughs) where it's just this is this is a person's lizard brain writing this people are working through some things yeah. And I mean, that's good in art. We are, we're all doing that in art, but this is like pure unfiltered yeah. id. It's fascinating, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's completely like, unpublishable. Yeah. <laughs> it's like peeking into somebody's diary. They're just like, here it is. I just yeah. sent it off to, into the outside world. And I feel like I should treat this like a baby bird that I found on the ground. Like, damn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they can be fascinating, but but not necessarily right for the magazine. Yeah, beautiful in, in in their own way, but usually not good stories. Right. Like the story equivalent to a Wesley Willis record or something. <laughs> what is happening? This is wild. Yeah. I love some Wesley Willis, though. Man. I mean, yeah, rock on, Chicago. <laughs> but yeah, what else? Um... Oh, typos and grammatical errors. I know a lot of beginning writers tend to talk about typos and grammatical errors a whole lot when it comes to editing and obviously that's important but i don't think i've rejected a story purely because of a typo or a grammatical error i've submitted stories with typos or grammatical errors that have gotten accepted if Mm -hmm. the overall quality is good i don't care if you used the wrong two somewhere but generally Mm -hmm. when you do Mm -hmm. see a lot of those it is it's more like a red flag than an automatic right it's it's symptomatic of something yeah yeah, like it's telling me the story was just written and wasn't really revised or edited. Mm-hmm. You, you mm-hmm. didn't, you know, give it enough time to really cook. You pulled right. it out of the oven a little too soon. Right. 
the deadline the deadline for that submissions call was coming up in a week and you're, you had just <laughs> yeah. banged it out yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean i've been there but <laughs> yep. yeah i've had enough close <laughs> friends with uh, dyslexia that i actually i think that's probably last on my list like yeah you could run sure. a spell checker people get they get frustrated with that i'm sure but i i, I really don't mind you can i can always do a copy editing pass if i really need to but i, I don't right. to be clear because i'm a slush reader and not an editor but yep not um, your job it's not my job, but somebody can, right? Like it's, you know, it is, if the story's great and it has some typos in it, I don't care about the typos. Yeah. Yeah. Those are easy to fix. Content problems where the, the climax falls flat or the, or the characters mm-hmm. are really boring or the dialogue's bad. Like you can't, yeah. you, that is too big a fix. Yeah. But yeah, we can fix your spelling. It's not a huge deal. It's just that if your story's full of those, very often it means it's just an indicator that, this it's, it's full of something else. Yeah, there's gonna yeah. probably gonna be bigger problems. That's all. So it's not it's not like the typo that causes it to be rejected. It's just that the typo is telling you, okay, this needed another draft. No. Yeah. In programming, that kind of thing is called a, a code smell, where like you open up the <laughs> file and the the formatting's all janky, and they've used different ways of naming things, and you're like, oh, I'm gonna have some other problems working on this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that. So typos aren't a reason that I've rejected anything. One one of the rejection types of rejections that always makes me a little sad is that sometimes the story has a really cool idea, but it doesn't really do anything with it, or the style and the language aren't very good. These near misses right. are actually really kind of heartbreaking. Like, oh, you have really good ideas, but it's not working. Yeah. I hope you don't give up on writing because, you know, with with some polish, this would be a really good writer. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing those are when editors send one of those, we look forward to your next submissions rejection letter. Like, I really, you do want to tell the writer, I hope you cannibalize the good part of this and reuse it in something else in the future, revisit it later. Just sometimes your ideas need more time to marinate before you're ready to write them. You do see a lot of those like little near misses no. that are a little sad because it's like, oh, you really do have talent. And I know this and I hope this rejection letter doesn't make you want to give up on writing because yeah. you're actually <laughs> you have tons of potential. Yeah, those are the most heartbreaking as a slush reader, because like we don't have any like agency in the process, really. Right. Because even uh, like I don't know about for uh, for other outlets, but at least for Seize the Press, I don't have the ability to just straight up reject something. I just no, we send it to the editor who sends the rejection. In Blood Knife, the way it works is you you put in a comment. There's not like a score, but you add comments. And sometimes I'll put in like near miss, yeah. you know, good, but not quite there. I don't, I'm not really sure what Kurt's system is for sending out rejections. I have pushed the button before. In fact, depending on how you configure your rejection messages on, on Moksha, it can it can go out anonymously or or with your name on it. So my name has appeared on plenty of rejections that have gone out to people and I've never been one to uh, personalize them. But uh, yeah, even even those stories where I'm like, oh this is and usually and to be clear, I will I guess in the case of Constell using the 10, the scale from one to 10, the thing five, five and below is automatically, you can just push the button and reject it. If it's a six or a seven or an eight, then maybe wait on it. Maybe let someone else read it. And if it's, if you score it higher than an eight, then it automatically gets forward to the editor. 
So yeah, in, in the case that it's a good idea, but it's not really doing it for me, I'm not going to be the one to what tell, them think, what, tell them where they've gone wrong, you know? What is it? I, I think it generally is kind of like pass or fail. It's pass or fail for Seize the Press. Either you send it into the rejection pile or you send it in the second look pile where the editor yeah. takes a look at it. Mm -hmm. And that's about it. What is it? Blood Knife had, it was kind of pass or fail, but there was like pass and also high pass. Where it's like, okay, this is decent versus holy fucking shit. Yeah. And you'd put in comments as to like, here's why I'm rejecting this a lot. And some some places, one place I've read for, I wasn't really, I didn't really do a, a lot with them, but they had a system in place where automatically every story had to be read by two different people. Um, oh, that's clever. That's a good idea. Which is, yeah. I think, a good idea, which avoids that sort of problem of this is good, but I don't like it or right. yeah. I don't, I don't like it, but it's well-written. Well, maybe someone else will have a yeah. better. Yeah. You need it. a, you need a pretty good system with a good number of slush readers though. And, and I think a lot of mags, especially opening ones, it's the system's all a little janky. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. all a little yeah. clunky. You see how everything's kind of held together with duct tape and string. Yeah. Nothing quite works the way it should. And everyone's just trying to keep it moving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's see. So another another reason why stories get rejected is way too much padding at the beginning, like over explaining, mm -hmm. taking too long to get to the point. And you even see it in Flash. It's kind of amazing that you'll read a story that's a thousand words long, which is very short, and it still feels really padded and it still drags. Like it only took me five minutes to read this story and it dragged somehow. That's yeah. holy shit. It's difficult. This is a dumb joke that I probably stole from somewhere, but they're the three most difficult parts of writing a story are the beginning, the middle, and the end. And I think the <laughs> the beginning and the end are the the most difficult. Uh, yeah, the beginning too. I, I think a lot of the time when we're writing a rough draft, there's sort of the warm up writing mm -hmm. where we're writing For a sure. lot of stuff to find that the idea. gets us there, right? Yeah. And, but yeah, in, I, in the subsequent draft, you're supposed to cut that. And I think the problem is a lot of these writers don't cut it. Yeah, One, I've heard that referred to as a kind of auto hypnosis where you're kind of trying to lull yourself into the, <laughs> you know, get, get yourself into the vibe of the story, yeah, but yeah. also convince yourself that there's a story there. Yeah, yeah. I know and what I I'm talking about. Yeah, right. And, and it's easy to leave that in because you obviously want to convince the editor that, you mm -hmm. know, what you're talking about, too. I've done um, my homework. Right. And it just... I, I I really struggle with stuff like that. I, I and and oftentimes, especially for stories that center around a, a kind of twist or subversion, it's yeah punchline like stories. Yeah, mm. so so it'll spend two thirds of the time saying knock knock, and then <laughs> we don't sometimes it doesn't even get to the actual punchline, and I'm yeah. kind of left bereft, going, "Well, I was hoping for some effect from yeah, this." Right. The next the next to last paragraph is orange who. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah. all right, all right. And then there's one sentence and I'm like, oh, you, you really could have used some more space here. But, yeah, know. yeah. So many of the stories that I've rejected are, I, I've started kind of calling them internally punchline stories because it's all built upon this one little twist or this one little almost like a clever punchline at the end. Yeah. But the buildup is there's way too much and it takes forever to kind of get there. And usually the payoff just isn't strong enough for all the buildup. It's a really, yeah. really weak punchline for a joke that took 800 words to get to. Especially in Flash, right? Because Flash is yeah. almost like poetry. You need you need a tremendous economy of of, of effort. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't really 
I don't find myself really writing much flash fiction. And so it's uh, hard. It's really, yeah. yeah. Hats off to anybody who's out there even really trying to do something of that form because I find it, I find it really, really difficult. Another thing I was going to say with relationship in relation to writing the beginnings that these beginnings that are sort of laborious and take a long time. I sometimes wonder if I'm, I'll admit that as a reader, I, in recent years, for various reasons, I haven't, I don't really find myself reading novels very much. I'm definitely much more of a short story reader. And I wonder sometimes if some of these things that you see in stories that come in, in the queue where they have this excessive backstory or the balance between like scene and summary is kind of off. I wonder if that's like people trying to use a more novelistic style in the short story form because novels are obviously, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, I don't think it's controversial to say that novels are more popular and more widely read than the short story is. And so maybe a lot of people who are reading a lot of novels and trying to write short stories are trying to emulate that novelistic writing in a way that doesn't really lend itself well to the, to the short story. No, you gotta be like ruthlessly tight with short stories, especially with flash. Yeah. That's and that's mostly what I've written. I, I, I did some like SCP wiki stuff back in the day, and then I, I, I had a flash story adapted last year for podcast. And nice. um, it's you really have to make every sentence and every word count. It's it's you don't have enough time to to establish vibes. You really have to make every every sentence has to do something, mm-hmm. and that's probably the the biggest, the most common fault i have with stories like i'm not like a a perfectionist about it when i'm reading slush but a lot of times there's a kind of meandering quality to stories especially in in a lot of flash and so i can absolutely see what nikki's what you're saying nikki in terms of sometimes they read like they've been cut from the middle of a novel right Mm, yeah 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 so so with stories especially flash like get to the point get get to the point get to the point do not bury the lead (laughs) yeah yeah and again, you can also overcorrect on that. There's a lot of conventional wisdom of like, you got to start with action, you know? And so there's got to be a fight or an explosion and then a flashback, yeah. that kind of right. stuff. A lot, a lot of screenwriting in, the, in short stories. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that kind of, definitely, I think there's the influence from movies where we're starting in, in media res in the middle of an action sequence, but we're forgetting that in a movie, you can visually encode a lot of storytelling, like into mm-hmm. the visuals, mm-hmm. into the costumes, the angles, the lighting, and so on yeah. and so forth, in a way that they're not doing in stories by just describing the action. So it doesn't have the strength that it would have in, in a movie. And also movies have the whole visual spectacle thing going for them and prose does not. Exactly. Yeah. And the, I guess the formal elements of a short story, like in terms of like how films are divided, you got the shots, you've got the the scenes and then the overall, well, I mean, I'm not going to talk, start talking about screenplay structure, but you basically just have sentences and paragraphs in a short story. You don't even have chapter breaks or like in some of Gene Wolfe's stuff, he'll, he'll separate things into books, right? That used to be an older novelistic structure. And mm-hmm. so, but you, you only have a subset of the techniques of prose in a short story, right? So it's right. harder to pull things off like that, like flashbacks and starting from action and in medias res and having us assume the premise like that 
it can often, I often find myself more confused by stories that do that, if only because I can tell that there's a gap in what I understand the story to be. And I know that that's part of the intentional effect, but the gap is misplaced. So I'm, I'm left wondering what is happening rather than going, oh, okay, this guy's a time traveler and he's actually, he's trying to save this person because yada, yada, whatever. Right. Yeah. 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 Mm. Let's see. So any other big reasons that stories get rejected? Um, any other common problems we find? Well, I think, I mean, we've, we, we were just talking about beginnings and I think endings are all, are, are the other big yeah. one. And again, this is not to old people who are writing uh, these stories. Like I've done it. I've written tons of stories where the ending doesn't work. I know, I know, yeah. I know that it's hard. It's oh, very yeah. hard for me, at least for other people, maybe not so much. So I'm fully sympathetic, but it is true that a lot of the times you'll read a story where everything is working and there's, there's good writing and interesting imagery happening and you care about the characters and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. But then you get to the end and you go, it just stops. Like, you yeah. go, oh, you're like, <laughs> yeah. maybe there's a, there's supposed to be a third act here is what I feel like, or, or. Yeah, it just doesn't yeah. stick the landing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or or the ending is just sort of predictable, or kind, or it feels kind of pat. Yeah. Sometimes the ending is over telegraphed. Speaking of that, mm-hmm. where the title might even allude to it, and and the author is trying to do some wordplay, and I'm all for wordplay. I love I love titles like that, but sometimes it doesn't. There's a misdirection element to stories like that that sometimes doesn't quite get carried off, and so we get mm-hmm. to the ending, and I'm like, oh, I knew this was coming. Okay, well, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a disappointment or something. Just oh, okay, I was not surprised. Not that not that you always need a surprise, but you want to. It doesn't have impact, I guess. It's not impactful. Is what's right. happening. It it doesn't end so much as it stops. Yeah, yeah. yeah when it the momentum carries you to the ending, but then it doesn't. It, the excitement doesn't peak at the end, right? And so right. it's just well, it's over now. Yeah, it fizzles. It falls flat. It's a bummer. Yeah, so I guess you could call that sort of an an effect issue, right? Like the ending isn't as effective as it could be. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I I also find the inverse is is true a lot of the time where every sentence is written for effect. And this is is making me sort of a hypocrite because I was just talking about how every sentence needs to move. But a lot of times it'll be like, even to the point of, of... messing with the grammar the writer you can tell the writer is anxious to have a certain kind of effect where like mm. it'll be like the the desk shook because he pounded his fist into it and i'm like okay i can see the cinematic shot you have in mind but this is actually kind of messing with the flow of the story mm. and mm. i'm not even really that because we all we all do that kind of experimentation right like it's part of being a writer is going okay i'm gonna try for this effect but there's an almost uh performative aspect to it i guess that that can really impose itself between the story and my my disbelief yeah telegraphing right like this don't you guys see how important this is don't you see right how sad he feels yeah almost melodrama yeah there yeah, yeah that's the word sort of let me tell you what you're supposed to be feeling i guess yeah exactly and I'm sitting here going, well, I want to feel it, though. That's why I like I like reading to, to feel things. <laughs> yeah. 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 Don't tell me the emotions I'm supposed to have. Just just let me let, let me do it. Yeah. 
No, and, and, and because my personally, as a writer, my, my impulse is just avoid that. And a lot of times I go all the way the other way and all my characters become <laughs> strange, effectless phantoms just moving from one point of the story to another. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. Way too understated. Yeah, yeah. I've been there. Yep. Yeah, but the, your point about feeling is, is really well put, Raquel, because it just makes me think of people who, who are bad at telling jokes who are like, you know, all right, so uh, here, here's here's the, here's the setup, and they're like, "But wait, wait, wait! First, you got to understand this other thing." Uh, you know, That's and then this other thing. Joke. Yeah, yeah. Okay, oh, totally. so let me, me explain yeah. the history of this jokes. of this farming family, and that the daughters all have some sort of hormonal imbalance that makes them unusually promiscuous. Yeah. <laughs> I will explain their various medical conditions. Yeah. All right, so moving on, other stuff we have learned. Uh, one thing that I've I learned is that you can usually figure out very quickly if a story is going to be rejected or not just by the style or vibe. That being said, I always read the story through to the end, even though I can tell right away, like, I'm probably going to reject this just because maybe I could be surprised. I haven't yet, but it could happen. And I figure, hey, if you took the time to write this story, I will take the time to read the whole thing, even though probably 70 words in, I know, like, nah. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand. And that speaks well of you. I think it's also a function of word counts. So if the word count is kind of... If there's a lower word count limit, then yeah, you can afford to to read everything. But as the as the word count creeps up, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm you're, reading. You're for, asking the reader to. You have yeah. to justify that that commitment. No? Yeah, I'm reading for Blood Knife and Seize the Press, which are I think twelve hundred and two thousand words. Yeah, limit, yeah. which is quite short. If I was reading something with a ten thousand word. Uh, word count i would probably not make it all the way through yeah. just if a story was just obviously like this, this is terrible i'm not gonna spend ten thousand words well that. that's it right i'm not as i'm not as as a big-hearted a person as you i guess raquel because i do try to read to the end but there's a lot of times where the style will be difficult to read or mm. purple in a way that doesn't work and it doesn't continues not working and i'll be like well okay it's been <laughs> I've read 60% of this. this is, yeah. I feel pretty confident this is what the whole thing is like. But I yeah. I also have been surprised many times when I'll be like, oh, I don't know about this opening. And then I'll be like, oh, I'll, I'll stick it out. And then, oh, and then the story finds its feet. And I'm, I'm interested. I'm invested. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I don't want to give the impression I bail early all the time. But mm-hmm. I'm right. also human. Right, right. Let's see. So do cover letters matter? I know a lot of a lot of writers seem to obsess over writing their cover letters to submissions. I I feel like that's kind of misplaced. Like, mm-hmm. granted, I, as a slush reader, I have not even seen these cover letters. I, at see, all. I, I read one I see accidentally. Some, I've seen quite a few and they run the gamut from one sentence long to my entire bio and every single thing I've ever had published and a literary contest that I won 15 years ago and things like that, which it's not really necessary. No. I don't know that I don't know that it works against you, but it doesn't really do much in your favor either. I don't think. Yeah. I think it tends not to matter that much. Yeah. I, I tend to go with very simple cover letters. Like, Here's my submission. It's this many words long. And then if they ask for a bio, I'll put in a very brief bio. Yeah. That's it. I've rarely read a story and found myself wondering what the person's biography was like, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I have read one that was included in the manuscript, and I'll say mm-hmm. don't do that because it, it took me a little bit to 
I was like, oh, this is a metafictional. Oh, no, it's just an accidental. It's like, it's like no. Nazi literature in America by Roberto Bolaño. Cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. A little bit of literary biography. No. All right. So how about an- another thing that many writers will include in their manuscripts and in, in their bio information is if they're members of a professional organization like SFWA or HWA, that's horror, the Horror Writers Association. Or I see a lot of people even putting Codex member, which is, hmm. it's a message board. <laughs> Guys, it's a message board. You, that, that's, not, that's not something to brag about. It's like putting something awful goon. In your bio, which to be fair, like I would probably have more regard for something awful because it gave us Slender Man, yeah, and and the Grover House, I'd be and like, oh, this plays. It has given given us a wealth of internet culture, whereas Codex, a sort of somewhat racially segregated message board, has probably not had as much of a uh, an influence on culture. <laughs> yeah, and I'll be honest, I don't know the right word, but I get the impression from a lot of these organizations that people think that they are very famous and i i did not know who like i didn't know what codex was yeah, i knew it's SFWA a message board was, it's not but, famous at all it's really yeah. weird it, but it's it's like a it's like a pro <coughs> message board right like a pro writer you it, you need to be published first but you can be published in like a dinky little semi-pro mag it's it's I mean, not a very high bar and if you want to put in your cover letter, like I have been paid for writing fiction, I, I think I would that would actually mean more to me. <laughs> yeah, and that is normal actually. In cover letters, if you're including a bio, you usually put in my work has appeared in such and such and this and that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but again, yeah, exactly. Day, yeah, like at in, the end of the day, I don't think that any of this stuff. If no. the story is good, or if it's if the story is good, I'm not gonna hate it automatically because you said this that or the the other and your cover letter and vice versa the story is has problems and is not isn't there and isn't doing it then no 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 amount of memberships to things is going to change that yeah well said. yeah and i definitely haven't noticed a difference in quality between people who are members of the, these professional organizations and people who aren't i've approved of of stories by people who didn't list any membership and i've i've rejected loads and loads of stories by people who are members of these organizations it's not a mark of quality it's not a mark that it's bad it's just nothing yeah yeah to to be honest i try to read them as though it was blind submission i don't want to like remember people's names or information so i just like skim over it anyway yeah yeah that's definitely the way to do it just ignore the person's name just know nothing about it just focus on the story to be fair i usually don't know any of these people's names i don't think i've read a story yet where i recognized the person's name i i, I have i've read a few of them we were like where i was like oh i know this person i better not oh, read wow. this and then i'd recuse it yeah i've seen not people that i know personally but writers that whose name i recognize from having read them in other places i've seen their stuff before mm. in the in the queue yeah and it's kind of hard not to let that color your perception Oh, of course. But, but it, you know, it, it, in the end, again, it's, it's the story that matters. Yeah. The, like David Lynch said, the, the film is the talking, right? There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the story itself. I don't, I don't care what your membership is. Not impressed. I, I, I mean, don't know. It's, it's, I don't know if there are other magazines where it does matter. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. It, it's a membership, right? Like it just says, yeah, I, I paid my dues and I yeah. was accepted. And that Here's counts the club for that I am in. But, yeah, it's not in the story. So yeah, 
maybe if the story was about being a science fiction writer or a horror writer, I might take it into account. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So, so not, not, not impressed by your memberships. We don't care. <laughs> write, a, write a good story. That's what we like. talk about the kinds of stories we've seen we mentioned punchline stories where set up punchline doesn't work the twist ending is not working and the story leading up to it isn't compelling enough but another type of story i see over and over again is a story about a bullied kid who gets some kind of supernatural revenge (laughs) i see a lot of these i'm guessing it's the writers are young people working through some stuff Mm. it's not an automatic rejection but if you're trying to write one of these understand that the slush reader has probably seen a shitload of them today and it's going to be (laughs) very 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 hard to impress them you you'll have to stand out and do something really extraordinary to get it published because there's so many of those yeah, it's funny. I, I don't know how much. I, I don't. I don't think I've run into very many of those. I've run um, into a ton of them. Weird. I've definitely run into people. People get supernatural revenge, but the oh, you bullied me, and now I'm I'm getting back at you. I, I haven't seen that very much at all. Hmm. It's been mostly like gender war stuff from the seventies, basically. Right. Yeah. Oh hell yeah. In that vein. yeah! The id category, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, I've definitely seen a lot of marginalized person becomes a spooky superhero, which I guess is kind of related to bullied kid gets supernatural revenge and to be fair like these kind of stories do sell very well at other speculative venues so i I can't blame the writers for trying yeah i mean it's all in the execution i think you can write a story like that and if if you're a talented writer and you've got control of how to write a good sentence and and you're you're imaginative in the way that you tell the story then i think you can make it work Right. Uh, yeah, totally. Well, like... I think it's a common structure, right? Because I think this is also a kind of punchline story in the sense of like, not to suggest that marginalized people are punchlines or anything like that, but in the structure of a joke, right? You've got the setup and you've got the tension and you've got the payoff. And a lot of the times that comes with a subversion of the premise. And so I think if initially you start from an underdog position and then you end up at the top, that's a kind of emotional reversal. Hmm. that is in the same kind of vein as the punchline story, right? So in the same way, yeah, if you can tell a joke, absolutely tell a joke, but sometimes the, you need to workshop the joke a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, or or for me, it's just, okay, if this is a story I've seen so many times, you're really going to have to wow me to, yeah. to get past. Because the trouble isn't just, oh, I hate this premise, but it's like, okay, I've seen this premise so much and you're not doing anything special with it. And I kind of feel like sometimes you get the feeling when you're reading these that the the writer feels like, wow, I'm going to blow their fucking minds. This marginalized person is going to accept the supernatural spooky weirdness that's affecting their life and and claim their power and, and triumph. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know where yeah. this is going. I know where- I'm all for claiming power and triumphing. But yeah, it, it, it goes back to the larger question of in reading Slush, you get a good understanding of the big ideas that everybody has and thinks that like, wow, I'm surprised nobody's thought of this before. Mm -hmm. And 
that perspective, I think, is sort of hard to come by unless you do something like get involved in publishing. Um, yeah. Or read very widely, which is part of why that's common advice. Hmm. So th- those are the stories that I've seen the most. Bullied kid getting gets supernatural revenge and then punchline stories. What what are some super common stories or story types or premises that you've seen over and over again? We had uh, bizarre 1970s gender wars. There's just whatever the the trope is that month or whatever, whether it's werewolves or vampires or some. You hear editors and people talking about this sometimes online about how uh, okay, well there was an anthology for uh medusa stories or mermaid oh. stories and okay well they uh rejected i i wrote this medusa story and they rejected it at the medusa anthology so i'm just gonna sub it to somewhere else and right a lot of right. other people a lot of other people have mermaid stories medusa stories or werewolf stories or mummy stories or so that, that those come in seem to come in waves Right, right. A bunch of editors suddenly get a shitload of Medusa stories. And like, yeah. fuck, where's all this coming from? I read, no, seriously, the first week I was reading stories for Constellacion, there were like three Medusa stories. And I was like, this is weird. And they weren't even bad. Uh, right, but it does but strike like, you. Yeah. Wow. What is in the zeitgeist that is making people want to write about Medusa? Well, I can think of several things, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so those sort of the mythological creatures the horror monsters those are always cropping up in right in various forms let's see i've seen yeah. i've seen a good number of response stories too what's funny while reading while reading like oh really yeah like we did a whole episode on this podcast about omalas response stories and i've seen at least one omalas response story and at least one cold equations response story and i'm like oh yikes. you're still trying to write these yikes oh man i'm kind of envious i mean there's been so much gender war stuff for me yeah <laughs> i have I'd not seen I, I guess i've seen a little bit i have seen some gender war story yeah, I have, I've definitely seen at least one of those. Another common story type that I see, is, it's funny because it's not even like a as specific as the examples we've done so far, but they're, I, I think of them as baby's day out stories where there's something different about the protagonist and there's a kind of dramatic, I don't know, the opposite of dramatic irony where like the, the audience doesn't know what's happening, but other people in the story do. And you're kind of left to infer whatever's unusual about the, the protagonist from people's reactions. And then it's revealed at the end and they're like, ha ha, this person's a robot or, or something yeah. like that. Right. Um, yeah. Well, wasn't, I don't, wasn't there a really famous HP Lovecraft story like that? Oh, maybe. I'm, I'm I, I know there was, I'm it was not, a guy raised in some sort of weird dungeon and, and he escapes and everybody reacts to him with horror. And then he goes and and sees a, a monster and he's really scared and then in the end it's revealed that when he saw the monster he was looking at a mirror dun, dun, I mean, that, that, that sounds right turn I, your I, monitor I, on bro <laughs> yeah and like that's the thing it's it's all this other stuff it's it's an understandable premise and then if you can pull it off absolutely do it and maybe even do it if you if you don't pull it off because that's how we learn to pull things off but it's for sure something that i see a lot yeah <clears throat> Almost kind of a punchline story, too, in a way, that one, where it's yeah. all leading up to, and it turned out I was a robot or something, where it's like, oh, it, where it's not working, because you, you, I'm sure you figure out pretty quickly, okay, what's the deal with this this protagonist? Uh, what what is what does he turn out to be? Oh, okay, yeah, he's a robot. Yeah. All right. Well, 
yeah, it's it's more like there there's a gap between you can see where the space is where they're holding something back. It's it's almost like instead of saying knock knock, you start with the the other person looking at you expectantly so that you say who's there, right? So you're like, oh, okay, I have to infer that this is a this is a a particular kind of story from this, right? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so any any other things that you're seeing too much of in the slush pile or an unusually high amount of in the slush pile? Okay. Not really. Not really. The, the other one I see a lot, and this is like a general writing thing. I saw it a lot when I was GAing in, in grad school. But so people will often write pretty much like looking inwardly and don't seem to be writing for an audience, especially. So mm-hmm. this is expressed as... Uh, themes and characters and settings that are presented as though you already understand them. And so the author Mm -hmm. is kind of hurrying ahead and going, okay, yeah, well, we all know what's happening. And as the reader, I'm left there going, well, I don't, I don't know anything about this, this world that you've just given a proper noun. Like, yeah, there's an an implication there. That's not, uh, yeah, that's not connecting. Yeah. 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 Like, I don't know what's in your head. I'm sorry. I don't understand this. Work with me here. Meet me halfway. Yeah. And that, Constantly I mean, that, going, that give happens. me a little bit more. I mean, that's the, that's, that's the, that's, that's the trick is putting stuff on the page. That's, that's the, the hard part is knowing, uh, I guess sometimes it's, it's just a question of, is this, did you start in the right place? Did you, yeah. cause they're always like, start at the absolute latest last moment that you can before the story starts to sort of avoid some of the problems that we talked about earlier with, with introductions. And then again, you can go too far and go too ahead to go. You go too far ahead and you drop the reader in at the, at the deep end, which you can do if you're really good at it. But a lot of times it's, it doesn't seem to be very well thought out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah you, you've nailed it where basically you don't want to start too early and you don't want to start too late. It's it's just that easy. It's the, 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 yep. hard, the three hard parts are the beginning, middles, and ends. That's all. Yeah, <laughs> that's all. If you can get those, it's it, that's it. Then you're good at writing. No. That's all it takes. All right. So let's switch gears and talk about rethinking rejectomancy. Mm. I've heard people sort of jokingly refer to something they're calling rejectomancy. That's the art of trying to decipher rejection messages following the cue, like in the submission grinder to predict when and if you'll be rejected and, and just basically trying to like find your horoscope based on these little external signs Mm -hmm. about rejection and, and it can kind of drive you crazy trying to do that. (laughs) I do. I, I, I do it. And even after having been on the other side and knowing that, there's no mathematical equation that will tell you like, well, okay, well, I saw a rejection for someone else's story on Duotrope or on the submission grinder two days ago, and theirs was submitted on the same day that mine was. So two days from now, I will receive a rejection or an acceptance. No, right. it doesn't work that way nope. because they probably have 10 different people reading Slush and those people maybe have 10 different things, a million different things going on in their lives and they're reading at 10 different rates of speed. And yeah, there's, there's so many moving parts in the process mm-hmm. that it's, yeah. you can't predict anything from that. Yeah. That said, I still do it all the time. I still yeah. just you know, <laughs> look at yeah. my phone, like the grinder. Let's see. Oh yeah, look at that. Another... Yeah, when, whenever rejection. you do, okay. whenever you have um, a moksha system and you send it 
and you know that you're in the queue, mm-hmm. when you have a queue number, that's the worst because you keep refreshing it mm-hmm. and refreshing it and refreshing it to see like, have, have I, have I, have I, how many numbers have I jumped up? Yeah. I'm, I've, I've been at number 37 for two weeks. What the fuck? Yeah. I feel What's like happening? I see less than that. I feel like I'm seeing more places that, that don't show the queue number. And I think that's quite merciful on their part yeah. to, to or, sort of or submittable will show you if your work is in progress and what does that mean it's been yeah. in progress for a month what's happening yeah <laughs> why is it still in progress it's it's scare quotes in progress yeah yeah i, I don't know i'm just really cool and smart and i just don't check it because you're i forget about it all the time you're a better man than i yeah yeah <laughs> I, i've also seen people trying to trying to scry the the language used in rejection letters i I, I, I was part of a writing group that a lot of really? people wanted to get into the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And this was back when Charles Finlay was the editor and they would like go over the rejections he sent and try and parse the language. Well, he used, well, he said, didn't quite win me over. And that means this. Mm-hmm. And he said, didn't make the cut. And that means that. It's like, yeah, well, actually, I, I kind of feel like it would be weird to expect the editor to be like, I'm going to deliberately use these code words. Well, I think, you know, I, we're getting I, into I, like QAnon Pizzagate <laughs> shit here almost. Yeah, like, exactly. I don't think yeah. he's doing that. I think You're trying to actually, you know, in the case of, of CC Finlay, I seem to recall he published a blog post. I think I don't know if it was when he when he was the actual editor or when he first did one issue, I think, before he beca- he, he was he became the official editor but yeah he, he, i think he posted on his blog something along those lines sort of explaining what that boilerplate language well if i said this it means that if i said this and it means that but mm-hmm. that's a special that's a special case i think a, a lot of a, more of what you see is i don't know if you guys are familiar with the rejection wiki which is a the wiki what? the rejection wiki which is a wiki of people who submit their th- the text that they receive in their rejections and and oh so they can compare them and see oh this is higher tier this is lower tier this is yeah yeah very cursed i've seen a lot of those <laughs> you will you will drive yourself crazy doing that don't fucking yeah. do that don't do that it's not going to help you get in anyway what does it help you to know like That's... oh my rejection was top tier and not lowest tier well, like there's okay. a, there's there's just a a, a a masochistic bent that i know that i have it as part of my personality and i suspect it's pretty widespread amongst the population of yeah. people yeah. submitting short fiction to these places. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. I understand the impulse, but it just, what is it going to accomplish? I, especially having seen, I, I worked in literary publishing for a little while and I worked in very, very small presses. So like similar, probably scales to SF magazines, people are just really busy. So like, I just, I, I find it hard to, Maybe C.C. Findlay is writing in code, but whenever I am thinking about, oh, I wonder where I am in the queue, I just also imagine the editor who, like, you know, is sleeping four hours and out night and trying to read a thousand stories a month. And I'm like, well, I can give it a little bit longer, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So one one thing about perspective is I think we've we've noticed this. Writers often think of editors as the final boss to defeat in the <laughs> video game to win the prize of getting published. But it's not really that. Most of the time, it's just some some slush reading schmo. A lot of the time, the editor will not even read your submission because, again, mm. they're getting a thousand of these a month. That yeah. that's a lot. And also, that editors aren't special people. They don't <laughs> really have particular insight. Like one editor will reject a story, and another will accept it at another mag. And it's Absolutely. arbitrary. Editors yeah. are just 
people who happen to be in the position to decide whether or not to publish a story. <clears throat> and honestly, like all people, sometimes they have kind of weird taste. Yeah, I've seen stories yeah. that I've seen stories that I have rejected go on to be published in other places and and been like, oh wow, cool, awesome, good for them. They yeah. kept at it. I've and also stories that I recommended to pass on to to an editor that the editor finally didn't uh, didn't publish it, didn't didn't select it from their selection of possible stories but then you see it published in another venue and then you see it nominated for the year's best horror and you're like well there really is no rhyme or reason to this it's really just a question of personal taste yeah. and each reader has their idiosyncrasies and each person has their sort of personal canons of what is and what isn't good writing and good fiction and you're and that's what you're up against that that that's how it is you know yeah, it's all subjective, right? Like, uh, it, it and, and I remember what this was like, especially when I was in uh, writing school, where, where you want the the acceptance and the approval and, and the validation of being like, well, I'm a writer, I sold something, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I get it. It's just that it's a lot of it's a lot of pressure to put on the editor, right? <laughs> they're not validate me. <laughs> they're yeah. not the canonizers, right? They're right. not the yeah, it's it's just someone sitting down trying to read a million words every time they sit down and trying mm -hmm. to find some good ones that they mm -hmm. like. It's mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, and sort of giving the lie to like sometimes you you see like in a submission guideline we just want to publish the best possible stories that we can publish and okay, yes, but there are other there are other considerations, not just the quality of the writing. Uh, it's the the number of words that the budget that they have, whether or not, I mean, if you have two incredible, you know, zombie love stories, you're not going to publish one in the January issue and then another one in the February issue. You're probably just going to publish one in the January issue and then be like, sorry, February issue guy. Yeah. We and did. space is a real concern too, right? Especially for print mags. Yeah. Budget space. It's not just quality. There's lots of stuff going on there. Lots of levers. Right, right. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's weird. It there's a little too much like emotional power, I guess, handed over mm. to the, this concept of editor, when literally an editor is just some guy. Yeah, or yeah. just some gal, or just some NB. Exactly. Well, yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of when I was teaching, you know, or TAing, I guess. But I, I, I would be the one who marked it and then who marked essays and then gave them back to the students and then would handle their requests for feedback. There's this real, uh, how can I put it? Some, there, some kinds of students really want to understand your rationale for giving them a grade and then also to argue it after the fact. And, I, and it sounds similar, <laughs> like a similar impulse to me. And sometimes it's justified. I definitely corrected some oh. of my grades after someone said that oh. because I would be like, oh, you know, you actually, you've got a good point. I did misread this or, or whatever. Okay. Um, but editors aren't giving you a grade. They're not going to give you a, they don't have any impact in your like employment, like mm -hmm. whether people are going to, whether you're going to graduate. They're just trying to get through the day, you know? Yeah. yeah. The, your rejection is not going to go on your permanent record. Yeah, no, no one cares. Every writer gets rejected. Every writer gets rejections. Even if you're at a really good stage in your career, you're probably racking up rejections. Even if you're a great writer. 
Yeah, I feel like there's almost some myth-making around, like, professional writing careers where we've all seen the, like, oh, here, here's a, a letter from Macmillan saying that, I don't know, some classic novel was rejected. They're like, oh, I don't think this is going to sell. Yep. And then they're like, haha, they did sell. But the truth is, everybody gets those letters. Yep. Even in the middle of your career, I'm sure that authors still get rejected uh, and their manuscripts edited and stuff like that. Yeah, again, it's there's no final boss. There was an essay that was published in the Michigan Quarterly Review, I believe it was, by this fella named Joe Saxteather. Hmm. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And it was the title was Against Quirky Writing. And what mm-hmm. he was describe what he was describing is a is a sort of style that is somewhat common in sort of literary magazines that and by quirky writing, he's referring to the sort of gimmicky, gimmicky, sentence-centric sort of writing that calls attention to itself in various ways by playing with grammar and cacophonic uh, effects with the sound of language and things like that. And he was sort of explaining why this this style has become so so prevalent in 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 so many venues in the in the literary world. And he he wrote this quote that I think was kind of interesting. So he says, the primary outlets for innovative work operate on thin to zero resources. Readers are often volunteering their time while taking a full load of courses and trying to get their own work into the world. Submission guidelines for other journals might indeed be some of the 20 tabs open as they read for their venue, their capacity for sustained focus long gone. No wonder they might only look at each submission for a minute or two before rejecting it. In such a situation, the benefit of quirky writing is that it immediately announces itself as strange. A story, conversely, that begins in a conventional way and gradually escalates its strangeness is going to be a harder sell. Now, obviously, he's talking about this phenomenon that exists in in, in literary, quote-unquote, fiction. But right. I sometimes wonder if this, this situation of, you know, volunteer people reading slush like I have done in my experience in the spare time that they have when they can, how they can. I'm wondering if that doesn't also explain some of the things that you see in in speculative fiction as well, sort of the trends towards tropiness and jokiness and stories that sort of telegraph uh, what they're about in the first paragraph and the mm. sort of clickbaity titles where it just tells you, this is my story, you know. I wonder if that doesn't make things stand out to your typical put-upon, overworked person trying to wade through all of this stuff. Do you guys think that might be possible? Or I mean, I think it can be possible. And also slush reading, because this is this unpaid thing, you're looking for people who have a lot of time on their hands, mm-hmm. which is also going to skew it too. In yeah. certain ways. Yeah. Mm. I guess it's also kind of self-selecting, no, of the people who are, you know, more likely to volunteer their time for this stuff are going to be, are possibly going to all mm, gravitate toward a similar kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, it. he's got a point in that you're trying to grab somebody's attention when you submit a story, right? Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that people are going to try to do that formally as well as with the content of it. So it, a, sto- a story that announces itself as strange, as in your quote. But I don't, 
like I get the general point in that we we mostly read tweets or we read status updates on Facebook. Mm-hmm. We're not that we're not used to like devoting serious attention to sinking into an essay or whatever. But at the same time, we as slush readers, we spend so much time reading that I don't know that that really applies because there's just so many words. Slush reading itself is a sustained attention task. So I don't know that it. You may be right. You may be right. It's just something that, that at the moment that I, the first time I read that, I, I read it recently, the article, and I was like, huh, huh. And I started to think about some of the things that, that have been talked about and discussed on previous episodes of this very podcast and thinking, hmm, I wonder if that making, writing a story that is in, for all intents and purposes, a meme story or a trope story, a sort of more digestible sort of. I don't. I don't really know how to how to how to call it. How would you? I think digestible is good because it. That's what um, the kind of the, the few stories that I've seen that seem to fall into this description of quirky writing. It seems like they really want to be. They almost have more in common with a press release than mm. my favorite short fiction in that. And again, this could totally be my taste, right? But they're like a press release in that they're a complete package. So they're like, okay, this is what you're going to find. This is the kind of strange story this is. And it has a kind of escalation that you can reasonably expect from the premise and the title. And then it has a reasonably satisfying ending. And it's pretty good. It, it tends to strike me that that is the intention is to be like, here's something that's pretty good and it's consistent. And it here's does what, what it, it does what it promises. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think there is a... There is merit to what he's saying in that sense, in that for people who genuinely are overworked or genuinely are like stressed or everybody's got busy, chaotic lives, mm-hmm. that is going to be appealing. I think that is a good point. Yeah. I just don't think it's, it, it doesn't match with what I've seen, it, at least at Seize the Press, because maybe the, maybe the transgressive call to action is uh, part of what helps with that. I don't know, but. Yeah. Could be. That's We've been talking that's... for about an hour, so any final thoughts, final comments? Just to stress, all of the things and quote-unquote flaws and mistakes and blah, blah, blah that we've mentioned here that I've brought up at least, like, I've been, I've done them all, you know, I'm not, yep. I, oh yeah. you know, oh, I'm just, and again, we were talking about how it's not some famous editor reading your story, probably, it's probably just some schmo, well, that's me, I'm. I don't know shit. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to figure this stuff out as well. So um, just to be clear, I'm not trying to. Yeah, we've all we've all done these. They're common mistakes because they're common. So yeah, we, we, <laughs> we all do them. I'm doing it right now, right? These are not meant to be savage dunks or anything like that. I'm a yeah. little tired of dunks, to be honest. So mm-hmm. it's, it's just stuff that I see. You know, it's just a, a description of what I tend to read. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I do know that one of the other slush readers I've been talking to, I can't remember, it, was it one of you guys was saying like that he'd sent out a story or they'd sent out a story and it was getting rejected and they didn't understand why. And then they were reading slush and saw a bunch of stories kind of similar to it that they rejected. And they're like, oh, okay, now I understand why. <laughs> Shit, yeah. Yeah, I'm doing this thing simple, and this yeah. thing sucks. I didn't yeah. realize until now. Yeah. It reminds me, I read this book on improv not too long ago, and one of the ideas it says in it is, don't, when you're doing improv, don't do the first idea that comes to mind, do the second idea, because everyone's yeah. first idea is broadly similar, right? Mm, that's cool, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, do do the second idea. 
do some do some refinement. Write a second draft, please. Write a second mm. draft before you send it out. For yeah. the love of God, don't send out your rough draft. What are you thinking? Don't do that. Mm-hmm. It's not going to go so good, probably. All right. So before we go, where can our listeners find and support your work? I write and publish a little bit, at least, under my initials, N.M. Whitley. And just last week... As we're recording this, I had a story published in a literary magazine called the Barcelona Review. It was their 25th anniversary issue, I believe, and they plucked my little story out of their slush queue and were gracious enough to publish it. And uh, you can check that out uh, online at the Barcelona Review. And that's about it as far as recent stuff. I don't have much of a presence. I was kind of off Twitter even before the Elon Musk stuff, but I do have uh, a story. The story I was talking about earlier that got adapted to a podcast is uh, the farmhouse and it's in uh, uh, psychotic operas two from the green box podcast. I was going to joke that I don't have a SoundCloud, but this is actually a SoundCloud link. So I'm going to send that to you. So please check out my SoundCloud. That's it, though. I have, I have stuff on submission, but mostly I just I read slush. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, and thank you all for listening. That's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, head to patreon.com slash write good and subscribe. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by Surgery Head. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. KittySneezes.com In color. <laughs> <laughs>